I think I'll be seated too. So as uh, Drath was just reading to us, the, the passage this morning found in uh, Matthew chapter 20 is called commonly the laborers in the vineyard and we're studying another one of the parables of Jesus. Now parables have been used for a long time to uh, tell a story with an important point. As a matter of fact, it's, it's basically a parable is a story that, uh, that could be true may not be true, but it could be true, and it's a familiar story, so people listen to it, and then at the end, there's a twist on it, there's a turn on the parable that's not common, that's not the usual way that the person or whoever was listening to the story would think of it, and that's on purpose, it's to get us who's reading the parable or hearing the parable to think, to think differently, to think outside the box, and if there's anybody who thought outside the box, it would be Jesus. And we are called to be his followers and to think outside the box too. And he gave us a lot of help for that. And his disciples had just as much trouble thinking outside the box as we do. Because we're all subject to the culture that we, that we live in. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the context for this parable. And for that, I'm going to start by saying that the definition of a parable, therefore, is a culturally relevant story that could be true and it reveals and, and conceals some relevant truth or truths could be more than one truth and of course it reveals and it conceals reveals is to get you to think about what you know to be true and it conceals certain things to get you to think more about it and figure out well what are the implications of this and to do that we're going to look first at the first century context for this particular Parable, which incidentally is not very different than uh, our culture today in this sense. In the first century uh, Jewish culture, not very many people owned their own land. Now in the Old Testament, God had set up the, you know, the laws that he gave to Moses in order to, to, for everybody to have their own land, but in the centuries that followed, and the wars and the fighting and the bickering and being conquered, etc., they had lost most of that, and so most land was held with a few rich landowners. Has kind of a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? And uh, most people didn't, know, uh, didn't own their own land. They were just laborers. So, so they would gather in the kind of a town square at 6 o'clock in the morning because a, a typical day, Jewish day, started at 6 a.m., basically first light. Remember, they live in the 20th uh, latitude or so, so they got about 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of nighttime. So you start at 6 o'clock in the morning and you're done at 6 p.m. So they wait at 6 a.m. for somebody, like a landowner, in this case a guy who owned a vineyard. That is a familiar ring too, doesn't it? Willamette Valley, we've got a lot of vineyards around here. And, and they would come and hire whoever many people they needed. Choose those people. And they could come back at 9 or 12 or whenever they wanted to, really, and take more laborers if they discovered that they had more work to do than was, was getting done. That was the, uh, the first century situation. And, and they got paid, as it says in the scripture, a denarius. A denarius is uh, the equivalent of one day's wage, which in that time would be just enough money to buy food and basic necessities. And everybody did it every single day. That's why you, the law was you had to get paid at the end of your day. There was no end of the week, end of the month kind of thing. You got paid at the end of the day because you bought your food on the way home. 
No grocery stores, no, you know, supermarkets, no refrigerators, no freezers, no, you know, very little way of storing food unless it was dry, like grain, for example. So you did this every day. Um, this is not, by the way, as I move on to the context in, in Matthew, I'm going to I, I didn't really realize this. I was reading a number of commentaries. I couldn't believe how many explanations for this, for this parable there was. You know, everything from, well, this is a parable about salvation to this is a parable about uh, how important it is for people to work hard to this is a, a parable about, uh, you know, uh, management labor relations. I mean, all kinds of interesting things. And I'll say right at the outset that this is not a parable about any of those things in particular. This is a parable about grace versus self-reliance, which we shall see. And we get that if we look at the rest of the context, which is in Matthew. Uh, really, the context starts, if you have your Bibles and you want to, you can turn there, or you can just listen to me summarize the story. Matthew chapter 19, it starts when this rich young man, probably a rich young ruler, comes to Jesus and he says, and listen carefully to this, what must I do to receive eternal life. What must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, what have you done? Have you followed all these different commandments, etc.? And he goes, yes, I followed all those kinds of things. So then Jesus says to him, go and sell all that you have and come follow me. And the man sadly said, apparently to himself, I can't do that, and left. And then Jesus said to his disciples, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, which is like a metaphor that's much more familiar to that culture than it is to ours, but we can imagine that it must be rather difficult for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And they were shocked. What, what does that mean? Well, in their time and space, a rich person... By, by virtue of being wealthy, already had, I mean, that was a sign they had favor in God's eyes. They had good standing with God. Their wealth was a blessing from God. In addition to that, their wealth also allowed them to buy the best sacrifices, do a variety of good deeds, you know, that you could do when you were wealthy, uh, and, so, and, and serve in a variety of different kinds of ways. You could do all those things with your wealth. And Jesus said, basically, guess what? With man it's impossible, only with God is it possible. Meaning, it's impossible for man, with wealth or whatever, to earn their standing before God. That's just as true today as it was then. It is not possible for any of us to earn our standing before God. That doesn't mean there aren't blessings. It doesn't mean we don't serve. It doesn't mean there aren't rewards. It means, in terms of our standing before God, that's 100% grace. And that's based, just as we were singing, on the work that Jesus did for us. God paid the price that we can't possibly pay. That's a pretty cool thing. But then if you read on, so he says this, uh, and he says, for Jesus says, you know, and if you leave your father and your mother and etc. And, and leave all and follow me, you, you will be, you'll be richly rewarded. And Peter hears that, and he hears, and, and he says, we've left all. What's in it for us? 
he changed that story that Jesus said from what God does for us for what we think God ought to do for us. Because look, we left all. We should, we should be blessed by that. And then and Jesus goes on to say, yes, you will receive rewards for your service. And he talks about what the disciples will get. And then he follows that up by saying, but the last will be first and the first will be last. Basically, God's economy does not measure success by how much you earn, what you earn with God. You'd be surprised. We're all on equal standing before God. Okay. That is why this parable is about grace and self-reliance because he, then he goes on to say, so let me tell you this story. And he tells him the story, this one that uh, the Drake just read, in which, you know, by the end of it, they're all, you know, grumbling, and we'll get back to that. But by the way, uh, this is part of revealing and concealing, you know, uh, it, it didn't actually register that much because in the next chapter, James and John's mother comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I have a favor to ask of you. Will you give my two sons the two most important places in your kingdom when you get there? Missed the point. We're not good at getting this particular point because we are a culture of self-reliance, of believing that you can get what you, what you earn. And that's true to a point, but not completely. So let's uh, move on because I think it's worth talking about grace for a little bit. These are, grace is a very familiar term to us. Self-reliance is a familiar term to us, and sometimes we miss the main point because we kind of are so familiar to us we don't think about it. And there isn't a, a better a, a set of verses than Paul's words in the, uh, to the Ephesians in terms of what, what grace is. So... For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then I didn't put, but I'll read to you part of uh, chapter 4 where he says, And to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. It was he who gave some of us to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is what grace is. And it's for this purpose. The purpose of grace is to do three things. It's to restore us to a relationship with God which we didn't have, which was broken after the fall of Adam and Eve. And all of us are fallen too. And that relationship can only be restored by what God does for us, not what we earn. That's number one. Number two, grace empowers us to be who he's designed us to be. We were just singing, we are called by him, we were made by him. And we become who he's made us to be as we receive grace from him. It doesn't eliminate any sort of uh, you know, self-reliance in terms of, of efforts on our parts. But the fundamental power to be who we're designed to be comes from God. 
And thirdly, it's to enable us to use our abilities to serve each other. We have grace in our lives for those three reasons. To restore our relationship with God, to empower us to be who he designed us to be, and to use our abilities to serve each other for the purpose of building up the body. And in that sense, we can say in a summary that God's gifts are given to us for our benefit and growth. Not for comfort, although there are gifts, you know, there's grace that is very comforting to us. It's for our benefit and growth. And it's completely unearned on our part. Now that's a good thing, not a bad thing, because you know how hard it would be to earn it all the time. It would be like impossible. And grace is essential for both our salvation and our maturity. And I put that, we all agree that, at least I hope we all agree that grace is essential for salvation. That's given to us by God, by the work that he did. But that's only the beginning. That's what we call justification. But sanctification, the process of becoming mature, is the rest of our lives. And we get gifts in order, God's grace gifts come to us, whether it's the gift of the Holy Spirit, or whether it's the gifts of the Spirit, or a whole bunch of other things that can happen in our lives that are that's part of God's grace. I'll give you one brief example of that, which I believe now is a gift of grace, even though I didn't know it at the time. So I graduated from college in the summer of 1974. I didn't know what in the world I wanted to do with myself. At that point in time, I applied to a whole bunch of different kinds of jobs, management, training jobs, and, and the dog catcher of Wheaton where I was living, and of which that was the one I wanted because that sounded a whole lot better than a management trainee job. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I was walking down the street, and this uh, acquaintance of mine who'd gone to Wheaton too, who I didn't know very well at all, but just walked by the other way and stopped and said hello, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I, I'm... <clears throat> tried to put a you know, positive spin on it, but basically I said, I don't know what I'm doing. And he said, well, I'm working at this psychiatric hospital, and today's my last day. If you want, I'll put in a good word for you uh, with, the, with the management at the hospital. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> with about that much enthusiasm. <laughs> so he did, and they called me up and and I went in for an interview, and they hired me. Changed my life. That was a gift of grace. Now, did it change my life to make me rich and famous? Not very much of either one. <laughs> That's not the point. The point of grace is to restore my relationship with God, which, by the way, I was having some troubles with at the time. It's to, uh, you know, it's to empower me to, the person, to be the person that God created me to be, to use the gifts and abilities that I was given, and, the, and thus I have in the years since, and it's for, for the purpose of service. And I cannot think of any other career, call it a career, it's really a ministry, but a career that I could possibly have been in and been happier and more... I feel like I was doing something more worthwhile and being me and serving the Lord. That little, I don't even think it was a five-minute conversation, was a gift of grace. It didn't sound all that spiritual, 
But again, it's not about whether it sounds spiritual. It's, it's the gift of grace that does one of those three things, and that did all three of those things for me. So I was also thinking a little bit about this, too. And uh, So I was thinking, so suppose Jordan, our uh, esteemed associate pastor to youth and his families, was sitting in his chair at home, and the phone, his cell phone rings. And he picks up the phone, says, Jordan... And uh, the voice on the other end says, Jordan, this is LeBron James. <laughs> now, this is not a parable. Remember, parables have to be something that might actually be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jordan, so I'm, uh, you may or may not know, but I'm on a nationwide uh, tour to different communities and cities, and I uh, want to kind of give back to the community. And so... Uh, um, I'm, I'm coming to Portland and I want to play some uh, two-on-two basketball with, you know, folks in the community. And, and, uh, and I heard you have some, you know, abilities with, uh, with youth and stuff like that. So I, I wondered uh, if you'd like to come on in for uh, a tryout in an interview. And Jordan says to himself, I'm getting a little long in the tooth. <laughs> Uh, I haven't been really exercising all that much. <laughs> okay, well, maybe it's your wife who says that when you tell her. <laughs> I better get in shape between now and then, next week. So anyway, he goes in for his interview, and he, he, he tries out, and, then, and uh, LeBron says... You'll do great. Don't worry. I'll carry you. <laughs> you just throw the ball and bounce to me. And <laughs> Clearly, there is no way that... No offense, Jordan. <laughs> There's no way that Jordan can be an equal teammate to LeBron James, who's arguably, no offense to any of you who think otherwise, arguably one of the best basketball players on the, on the planet. It's something that Jordan cannot do. He cannot be LeBron James. But LeBron James can carry him. LeBron James can empower him to play a, uh, a game so that they win every single time. Now, much as a contrast that is between LeBron James at Jordan's expense, that is nothing compared to the contrast there is between who God is and the gifts he provides for us, and who we are and what we can do. On the other hand, speaking of self-reliance, self-reliance is not something to be sneezed at either. I mean, self-reliance is part of our world. I mean, children, the time they're born, are self-reliant, and try and become self-reliant more and more all the time, and we try and teach them that as well. I have a granddaughter who's a little over two, and these are our three of her very first words. If you say to her, would, B, would you, her name is B or Beatrice, B, would you like us to uh, cut your filet mignon? And she will say, invariably, no, B, do it. That's what she said. Multiplied by, you know, about a hundred different things. And of course, it's cute and it's funny, and we let B do it so long as it's not, you know, too dangerous to her. We just finished the Olympics, in which we spent a great deal of time admiring, being somewhat envious, 
and uh, appreciating an incredible amount of effort that athletes put into being at the top of their uh, sport, whichever one it is. And we admire that and we appreciate that and we, app and we applaud that. Self-reliance, in that sense, is fine. Which is why, under healthy self-reliance, you'll see that it's dependence on ourselves to do what we can do and what we should be committed to doing while simultaneously valuing and res respecting the assistance of others. There isn't this myth that we can do everything. And unhealthy self-reliance is exactly the opposite of that. It's, it's being dependent on ourselves to do what we can't do or should not be doing and valuing and respecting what others have to offer to us because we uh, need it. So uh, I am as much guilty as, this, as anything because I like being self-reliant. Uh, it makes me feel good about myself to be able to say I can do it myself. And so about five years ago, we were backpacking in um, Sawtooth Mountains in Wyoming, or in uh, Idaho, and uh, we're hiking on this with my family on this absolutely miserable day. I mean, it's August, but it's snowing, it's sleeting, it's raining, it's awful. And we're hiking along this ridge, and Brian Holtus is in the front, and he's waited for us to cross this little creek, and we all get across, and I'm standing there like this, and, and I'm just standing there like this, waiting to move on. I'm standing there and, and like this, and all of a sudden I start listing like this, and so I go to move my right foot and it doesn't move, and so ooh, this is I'm, I'm listing more. I, I better move my left foot, and I, I move my left foot, but except it doesn't move either, and I just keep on listing like this, and pretty soon I'm like that, and this incredible pain in my shin. It's just like, oh man, it's it's gonna snap in two. And then uh, my body sort of twisted a little bit, and it was like it moved to my knee. It's like, ah, I'm going to blow my knee out. This is awful. And then, mm, splat, I hit the ground with this big shooting pain in my, in my lower leg. So I'm laying there on the ground like this, just kind of recover from the, the pain of it all. And, uh, of course, like, Dad, you know, are you Okay. I couldn't even bring myself to say yes because it hurt too much. So they came over. Well, uh, I crawled, crawled back to the creek, put my leg in the, in the water and, and uh, hoped that that would help. Didn't help. Just incredible pain. So uh, at that point in time, it was pretty clear that uh, I wasn't going anywhere by myself. So uh, Crystal, you know, put her arm around me, and, and so I'm about a quarter mile up the trail to where Brian had found a relatively flat space. And I'm there, and I uh, take my boot off and put an ace bandage on it, and basically I am just incapacitated. I'm thinking, well, man, what a bad sprain. And not only that, like, what an irony. Of all the risky things I've done in my life that I probably deserve to injure, all I'm doing is standing on the trail like this and fall over and turned out to be a broken leg. So we get up the next day and it's like, okay, I had to humbly admit I couldn't go any further and we probably were going to have to go back. So 
we headed back. This is my speed. In the meantime, Brian would take his pack, walk a mile down the trail, come back, pick up my pack, walk a mile down the trail, and maybe by that time I was, you know, the mile down the trail. And we did that for part of that day and the next day because it was six miles out. I'm still thinking I have just a really badly sprained ankle. And so eventually, after a number of reminders from my wife that I should go get it checked out, I went and got it checked out, and the x-rays come back. Well, you have a broken leg. Like, no, I couldn't have a broken <laughs> I can't think of a better example in my life of, the, of needing to know where the limits are, you know, where the boundaries of what self-reliance are and where you need assistance from somebody else. Yeah, terrible thing. Really, it's a good thing because grace and self-reliance are never intended to be in opposition to each other, but they're complementary. Self-reliance in terms of using the gifts and abilities that you have to the best of your ability is what God intended. That's why he gave them to us. But there's a limit to what they are, and at that limit is where you need help from somebody else. And I'm willing to venture to you, go out on a limb and say, if you have trouble accepting grace from other people, help from other people, you probably have a hard time accepting grace from God. You're being too self-reliant. If you are one of those people that are, have been known to be kind of a control freak, well, you probably have trouble receiving grace because control freaks say, I can do it myself better, actually, than somebody else, as opposed to, this is a gift for me. And what are those gifts for again? For your relationship with God with God, to be the person God created you to be, and for acts of service. That's what grace is for. All right, in light of all that, what does this parable tell us about uh, some subtle forms, uh, signs that we're not doing so good at receiving grace? Because, you know, we all know this sort of stuff. It's all easy in theory, in ordinary life, but then when ordinary life comes, we don't do so well. So the first, the first one that we see in that parable is, uh, well, I got them actually backwards. The first one is in Matthew 20, verse 11, where they started grumbling. Hey, this isn't right. We worked all day. And this guy, this, you know, is paying somebody who worked an hour the same as us. We deserve more. Basically, they were mad. Now, we tend to get mad at what other people have, especially if they haven't appeared to earn it. That just irritates us. It's not, you know, it's not fair, that kind of thing. And going along with being angry, oh, by the way, there's lots of ways of being angry besides just saying that you're angry. You can be angry by being sarcastic. You can be angry by sort of that grumbling thing. You can be angry by sort of diminishing what somebody else has accomplished. Like, well, you know, I've actually, it, it's, they got a big inheritance from their parents. That's how come they got it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you can be, uh, you know, that sort of dismissive of your siblings by saying, well, you know, they got, you know, they got an unfair advantage. You know, my, my younger brothers and sisters, they got it easy. I had it hard, you know, 
that kind of thing. And I can say that because I am the oldest of nine, and I said it many times. And I was always right. No. <laughs> and then there's envy, which, of course, we're also envious of people who uh, don't seem to have earned to have stuff and don't seem to have earned it. And we have our ways of expressing our envy about that, too. And the third one is uh, a compromised sense of injustice or unfairness. We are masters at saying that's not fair, which usually is compromised because it means I didn't get as much out of it as they did, that kind of thing. So when I was 10, my dad came to me on my 10th birthday, which is the only birthday I really remember from when I was little like that. I remember I was out in the driveway and I was playing basketball. Now my birthday is in April, so it's miserable and around here in April, and we had a gravel driveway, but I'm out there shooting baskets, having a great time saying, yes, double figures, double figures, ten, ten, ten. <laughs> Feeling very old and grown up. And so I come in the house, and my dad says to me, now that you're ten, uh, I think you're old enough for an allowance. And I said, oh, yes, an allowance. And I said, so I'm going to give you 50 cents a month. <laughs> now, now, remember, this was 1933, so, you know. <laughs> that seemed like a lot at the time. But he said, now, this, this is an allowance. You just get this. We want you to, you know, learn how to manage money better. And so, you know, here's your 50 cents. This is not, we're not paying you for chores, et cetera. This is just your money. Um, just, uh, you don't earn it. You're, as a member of the family, you have chores. <laughs> as a 10-year-old, as you now get this allowance. Great. Okay, so, all right, so. When I turned 12, my dad said, well, I'm raising your allowance to a dollar. Good. And then I heard him say to my younger siblings, the next three of them, you all get a dollar too. And I'm like, wait, that can't be right. I'm 12. And they are 11, 9, and 8. didn't help any. They still got their dollar, and I got uh, my dollar. Completely unfair. <laughs> now, I would love to say that when I grew out of that when I was 13. <laughs> I didn't grow out of it when I was 13, and I'm 64, and I'm still growing out of it, and I suspect <laughs> I'm not the only one. I have to sometimes even be really gracious to really celebrate somebody else who catches a bigger fish than me because clearly <laughs> that wasn't fair. Okay. What is the antidote for, for th these symptoms? I mean, what, what, okay, so yes, we're envious. Yes, we get angry. Yes, we think we're unjust. And what can be done about it? Well, first of all, it's to understand that we are not working to earn grace, but we are working to receive grace. Grace is something that we accept, something that we receive, something that we take in. And that is hard for us self-reliant folks who don't want to take anything in. Uh, we do have to work at this. We do have to say, 
Yes, I am open to the grace that God gives, the grace that our spouses give, the grace that whomever it is gives to, um, gives to us. Um, secondly, grace is non-comparative because it's not competitive. We are, we are, you know, when we see somebody else get grace, it's not, number one, that there's a limited amount of grace and they got more, so we're going to get less. God has plenty of grace to go around. Secondly, what God gives to somebody else has nothing to do with what God knows we need. He will give to us the grace that we need, not the grace that somebody else needs. And, and, and this happened between Peter and John. You know, Peter said when Jesus told him what was going to happen to him later in his life in terms of the sacrifices he was going to make, and he said, what about John? And Jesus said to him, don't worry about John. What is that to you? Basically, worry about your life and your relationship with me. John will take care of himself, in essence. And this is a struggle that we have that um, it's hard, very hard, to remember that grace comes to us because we need it, and we need it for one of those three things. Again, it's part of our maintaining, developing, maintaining our relationship with God, becoming the person that he's designed us to be, and service. That's what we get grace for. And he will give us that when we need it. And partly I say that because one of the things that's concealed in this whole thing is it doesn't say anything about the, the, uh, the workers, their attitude when they can got picked at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and 5 o'clock. So if you, if you got picked at 6 o'clock, you'd feel pretty good about it. Yes, good, I got a job. I can feed my family for today. If you didn't get picked at 6 o'clock, you get a little anxious. Oh, man. Then you come back and then you're still sitting there, and he comes back at 9. And this time, he doesn't pick you either. This time, you're like, oh, what is the deal? But you haven't got anything else to do, so you keep waiting. Now it's noon. Does he pick you at noon or 3? No. What is our natural human response to that? One of two. It's, well, oh, that's a rhetorical question for It's to blame somebody. It's to be mad and blame somebody. You could blame the landowner. I can't believe he didn't pick me. You could blame the other guys that are there who all pushed and shoved ahead of you and got picked because they you know, were more visible. Or you could blame yourself. You could say, there must be something wrong with me. He didn't pick me because I didn't look strong enough or tall enough or something or other. And then you begin doubting. What's going to become of me? And we do this with God. It's been a, we say to ourselves, it's been a long time since God gave me any grace which is ridiculous because it's been probably like 40 seconds, but nevertheless, something big enough for us to identify as grace. Must be something wrong with me. Must be, you know, something wrong with somebody. Like maybe even God. And the third one that's probably the most important as we close is the grace that we've been given. Remembering that. Remembering that basking in it, being grateful for it. Now again, you have to think, what, what's the grace that's been given to you? Now remember, this is not grace you've earned, this is grace that's been given to you. You guys over here, and it's true of all of us too, you've been given parents. You didn't earn your parents at all. You probably taught them a few things, but you didn't earn them. They are given to you, and they are given to you in order to teach you about God, you know, to help you 
develop a relationship with God, to use the gifts and abilities that every one of you've got, and to serve each other. Serve each other, serve your parents, serve the world you live in. And those of us who are parents, did we uh, earn the children that we have? No, didn't earn them. Those are a gift to us from God, a gift of grace. Now, I might add, by the way, that um, grace doesn't always feel so good. There's nothing in Scripture that says, number one, that you'll even recognize uh, how God is working in your life, necessarily, or that you'll even recognize it by feeling. You don't necessarily feel anything when God is giving you something and working in your life. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. And even if you do recognize it, it isn't necessarily feel good. It could feel bad. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And what did God say to him after he prayed to get rid of it? My grace is sufficient for you. Because it was for his character development, really. It was so he would, he would stay humble and wouldn't think of himself too highly. Back to the, you can't be who you're intended to be if you're thinking you're greater than who you are. So grace doesn't always feel good. Um, but it is good. Grace is a gift from God for our growth and for our benefit. So I challenge you at this particular moment to think about, okay, what, what are the greatest gifts of grace I've received in my, in my life? In my lifetime, even this week. Yes, you can say the, you know, salvation. Yes, you can say the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you can say sp certain spiritual gifts. Those are all true. I, I encourage you to push farther than that. Think outside the box. What are the other gifts of grace as you look at your life and you recognize if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be the person that I am. I wouldn't have the relationship with God that I do. I wouldn't have the opportunities to service the minister that I have. That's what grace is for. Let's pray together. Father, we can't possibly remember all the ways, or even recognize or remember all the ways that you have provided grace for us. All the things that we never even notice that are done in ways that you've designed for us not to know. But you have given us many, many gifts that we do recognize. And Father, it is our desire to praise you and worship you and thank you for those gifts. And not to be envious of somebody else's, not to be irritated with them, not to think of it as some form of injustice because we don't get what we want. But as gifts you've given us to enhance our relationship with you, to become who you've designed us to be, and to serve each other, all for your glory and your honor, which you so richly deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.